0: One of my favorite Sabbath practices, and that is where we find ourselves today on the Sabbath, gathered for the celebration of the Sabbath. But one of my favorite practices is to take time on the Sabbath, um, particularly towards gratitude. Um, Time stands still on the Sabbath. This is the day where we're not looking forward to the future, but we are remembering what God has done in the week that we have just finished, that we've just closed out. We remember the faithfulness of God. And so if you would, before we break open the scriptures, let's close our eyes, let's take a moment to reflect on this last week in prayer. Where did you experience the presence of God, the gifts of God, answers to prayer? for what are you grateful today? Who did God use in your life in this last week? Lord, we are here to remember you, to celebrate you, and to orient our lives around your story. We thank you for your faithfulness in this last week, for the places where we have seen your hand at work and experienced your nearness. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. He who promised is faithful. That is a major theme in the book of Hebrews. We are getting to the very end of our series through Hebrews 11. But what is important for us to remember is that the overarching theme in the book of Hebrews is this, that he is faithful, that Jesus is faithful, that God fulfills his promises to his people. God is faithful. And before we begin our new um, our new story today, I want to do some revisiting of Hebrews. I want to kind of look at what's in that book briefly. I want to remind you that the book of Hebrews, the first ten chapters, before we get to chapter eleven, is all about one thing: Jesus. It is a Christology. It is a sermon. It is a letter. It is a beautiful story of who Jesus is, the great high priest, the one who gives us access to the Father, the fulfillment of all of the prophecies, the beginning of the new covenant, the fulfillment of the old covenant. Jesus, our hope, the anchor for our soul. This is what Hebrews is about. And we cannot forget that when we move into chapter 11, because chapter 11 is, these are just examples of people who continued to carry out this kingdom of God idea, even when they maybe didn't necessarily see the outcome. They lived with the hope that Jesus was coming, that a Messiah was coming. They lived into the ways of God in their time. Hebrews is written, there's, there are actually a lot of questions around who was it written to, where was it, what was the occasion. But what's clear in Hebrews is that something was going on for this group of believers that was making them kind of doubt whether they could put their hope and their faith in this story of Jesus. Could this hold water in their current circumstances? They were experiencing trials, tribulations, things that felt overwhelming perhaps not unlike some of the things that we encounter in our world today. These believers needed reminding of the hope of Jesus, that Jesus is faithful. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us all about who Jesus is, reminds us of who Jesus is, and then shares these Old Testament accounts of people who continued on even when they couldn't see the end of the finish line. Now, some of you are familiar with a resource that we've used a lot in our children's ministries here. Many of your families have used this, this book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the, um, the tagline on the front and the theme throughout the whole thing is that every story whispers his name, his name being Jesus. Every Old Testament story is ultimately somehow connected to the story of Jesus, Every New Testament story is telling us something about the story of Jesus. It's all the story of Jesus. It's a whisper of Jesus. And that, even though Sally Lloyd Webber was absolutely genius in writing this, the author of Hebrews was the original writer of this idea of every story whispering the name of Jesus And chapter 11 begins with this, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. There's hoping for what is yet to come and for us that is the return of Jesus, the fulfillment of this kingdom of God, the continuing restoration. What is and what will continue to be. And this is what the ancients were commended for. They themselves were not Jesus. They were not the Christ. They were not miracle workers. God in them. So where have we been in our Hebrews 11 series? By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, even Sarah by faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith Jacob, by faith Joseph, by faith Moses' parents, by faith Moses, and most recently, by faith the prostitute Rahab. This list of these people who continued to walk in faith even when they didn't know the outcome. But as I reflect on where we've been, two questions emerge. The first We've kind of gotten to question one, who is the hero of faith in Hebrews 11? Because we often talk about this passage as the hall of champions. It is not. There is one champion, and it is Jesus. These are some great stories that testify to the faithfulness of God. God is the hero of Hebrews 11. Jesus is the champion of this hall of faith. Even Hebrews 3, before we get to, to Hebrews 11, reminds us in this telling of like this comparison between Moses and Jesus, it does this thing where it says, Moses was like a servant in the house of God, but Jesus is the son. We are the house. So Moses is someone who's serving the house, but the son is Jesus. The one who lives there, the one whose house it is, is Jesus. This is a story about Jesus. Now, my second question, I don't know if this is one that has been rattling around for you, but for me, I look at this story of uh, this um, list of people in Hebrews 11, and I wonder where are the mothers of faith in the Hall of Champions? Where are they? It is so strange to me as I look at this list. I mean, you have Rahab, but she was a Gentile. You have Moses' parents kind of referred to together, no specific list of his mother. You have the one, we, a group that we'll talk about today, which is very vague and also Gentile. And then you have Sarah you know, the mother, the mother. But I think it's it feels strange to me because because where are Rachel and Leah and Rebecca and Ruth and Esther and Naomi and Tamar and Abigail and Hannah and Deborah and Shifra and Pua, where are these women that were like a big deal for the Hebrew people? Where are they? They're just missing. And we might think, oh, well, that's just kind of how the Bible was. No, that's not how, that is not how the Bible was. Truly, I mean, especially because Hebrews is written to the early church. So in the early church, I mean, we have all of these other examples. So it raises this question of, well, who wrote this thing? Who wrote this thing? And so um, Thomas Long, one of the scholars that I read, says this, and this is really common to what others say. Well, we don't know who wrote it. Maybe it was Apollos because he was an amazing preacher. Maybe it was Barnabas because he spent all this time with Paul. He would have heard those stories. Maybe it was Luke. Maybe it was Clement of Rome. Maybe it was Priscilla. Maybe it was Sylvanus. No one knows. The thing that is certain is it wasn't Paul and it, um, it no one knows. Those are the things that are certain. No one knows who wrote Hebrews. And Paul, his style is in Romans 16 for just a single example of how Paul interacted with women in the church. I mean, he has this very honoring, very honoring list. He's, he calls Phoebe, the deacon, my sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church. Greet Priscilla and Achilla, my co-workers. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. He says, um, oh, my vision is not good since 2020, Junia, an apostle, greet, um, well, I don't, I don't look at, Tryphena and Tryphosa, the, woman, the women who worked very hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who's worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus um, and his mother, who's been like a mother to me too. Greet my sisters. Greet um, Nerusis and his sister, like all of these women. So this is how Paul thinks of it. So Paul's list includes women, but the Hebrews 11, it like, it just has like, a couple of Gentile women. That's weird, and then Luke, of course. Uh, so Paul and Luke would have been would have written the most of the New Testament. Luke, the most epistles. I mean, I'm sorry, um, Paul, the most epistles. Luke, the most words between Luke and Acts. And Luke, like everything Luke writes, has like a ton of women in it. So the women and Mary, you know, were the ones gathered in the early church. He's telling us like, obviously, all the women. You know, you know all the women. Um, and then Jesus, we know, had all of these women who followed him. Luke 8 tells us the story of, um, you know, Mary called Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Chisa, Susanna, and many others. So there's all these. So, so Paul, Luke... And Jesus, all their lists all include a ton of women. So who wrote Hebrews 11 that just like left out all of, all of the Jewish women? I, it's weird to me. Even Matthew's genealogy includes five women, which is known for being like the story of all of these fathers of the faith. So who wrote Hebrews? Well, we don't know. We're not really going there today. I mean, we're, it just, I just kind of want to put this out there. So, so we could have, um, you know, have this maybe maybe it's apollos maybe it's barnabas we don't know but could priscilla have written hebrews who knows but here's the argument cuz we'll never know but at least it's interesting because there's one woman on the list of possible authors which might be an interesting like maybe maybe a woman wrote it and that's why there aren't really any women on the list who knows but here's what scholars Crager and Evans say. Um, Why do some scholars believe Priscilla wrote this book when no other New Testament book is attributed to a woman? Well, Priscilla, like the writer of Hebrews, belonged to Paul's immediate circle and enjoyed Timothy as a colleague. She did not know Jesus from direct experience, but received his teachings from others. Hebrews also expresses a marked sympathy for women. Um, Its account of Sarah emphasizes her faith as she faced challenges of a child in her old age. Anyway, I don't know if Priscilla wrote this but I think it, I think our Hebrews 11 list is very interesting in how in the women it includes and in the women it doesn't include. And so I mention all of that because I think that there's some, there's some pieces in there that are important for us as we just pick apart those stories. These are, these are Old Testament stories that are certainly reminding us of the faithfulness of God. But when we talk about this as the hall of champions, there are a lot of champions of the faith that are not on that list. So, the God who promised is faithful. Now... Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is where Hebrews 11 starts. So let's see which which passage we're going to do today. So Hebrews 11, 32 through 35, um, whereas up until now, it's very clear, like the writer of Hebrews is going through each person individually. The writer of Hebrews kind of freaks out at the end, in my opinion, and just starts to exp- like, oh no, there's so much I haven't said. And so this is literally what Hebrews 11, 32 through 35 says. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut mouths of lions, quenched fury in the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, and rather, I mean, there's a lot going on here. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. And I love to talk about this particular little line. Women receive back their dead, raised to life again, because we know it's the power of God that does this work. It is the power of God that overcomes death. This is one of the coolest things in our story of the Christian faith, is resurrection, that death is not a finish line for God. It is a starting place. This passage, Hebrews 11:32 32 through 35, where it's talking about these women who received back their dead, raised to life again. I often like to tell New Testament stories when I, when I share about this passage, but what's really happening here, because these are Old Testament, all of these heroes of faith are Old Testament folks. So what we're really, these are really stories of the prophets, these women who are ra- received their dead, um, raised back to life. So the, there's two stories in the Old Testament. One is about Elijah. One is about Elisha. And there's Elijah um, and the widow at Zarephath, who what is going to happen is both of these stories, um, the prophet is going to raise one of these women's sons back to life. We are only going to talk about the first one, the widow at Zarephath, out of 1 Kings 17 today, but these are the stories that are being mentioned in Hebrews 11, the widow at Zarephath and the Shunammite woman, um, both raised by prophets. And you can see, you know, when I read you all of that, like very end of Hebrews, how the writer of Hebrews just is like, oh, there's so much more story of the Old Testament that I need to tell you. So, let's read the story of the widow at Zarephath. First Kings, seventeen. Some time later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now pause for a second. The reason there had been no rain in the land is because Elijah and um, is is kind of at, at battle with, uh, Baal. Baal was, uh, perceived to be the God who provided rain and Ahab was the king. You know, in the Old Testament, every king has a prophet. And so Ahab is the king and Elijah is the prophet. And so, but Ahab has started to turn towards believing in Baal instead of our God because he has this wife, Jezebel, who's horrible. And they, um, and so what, what Elijah says is like, okay, you think Baal can provide rain there's going to be a drought and it's going to be until I tell my God to provide rain. And so then this whole God contest begins. It begins here. You probably remember the story of Elijah later on where he challenges the prophets to Baal and he's like dumping water on his altar. And he's like, see, let's see if your God can provide water. You remember that story. And then all of a sudden, God's like, and then the very wet altar goes up in flames. Okay. So, so what's happened here is Elijah has just told King Ahab that there is going to be a, um, a, a drought throughout the land. And so because he has told King Ahab this, now Elijah going to go into hiding. So because there's not only going to be a drought, there's going to be a famine. So then in verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. Now, Zarephath, this is is such a crazy thing that God's asking Elijah to do because Zarephath is where Jezebel is from. This is like enemy territory. God is saying, go hide in enemy territory. Ah. Um, So so go and hide there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Now, remember, widows did not have any right to property, they wouldn't have been able to work, you know, I mean, none of the um, transfer of possessions would have come to them. So, widow often meant poor, and that's why we see all throughout scripture that, that the church is to take care of widows and orphans, because these are people who don't naturally have some of those means themselves. So, Elijah's being sent to stay with a, a poor widow who um, in enemy territory. So, I've directed a widow there to supply you with food, So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks for her fire. This is the widow. He called to her and said, would you bring me a a little water in a jar so so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called and bring me, please, also a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I do not have any bread. She is poor. She is poor. I do not have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. There is a drought. There is a famine. She has nothing. She's preparing to feed her son their last meal. And this is when Elijah shows up wanting her food, wanting to stay with her. It is a very scary situation for both of them. He's in enemy territory. He's just told off the king. He's staying with a widow who has nothing. She has nothing and is being asked to show hospitality. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me and what you have, bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord says, the God of Israel, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. It will not run out. Just be faithful. It will not run out. The Lord is going to provide for you. Even though you're nervous, there will always be enough. Does this make you think of manna in the wilderness? Or of the jugs of wine at the wedding at Cana? Or the baskets at the feeding of the 5,000? There will always be enough, he says to her. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. With God, there's always enough. But sometime later, the son of this woman, who had walked in faithful obedience, who had provided out of her nothing... Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. His son, her future, the one who would provide for her in the future. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, Why do you, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? So she's mad. She has just provided for Elijah. God has provided for her, but then she sees it as a trick from God. You let us live only to have this horrible thing happen. Her grief has turned to anger, as it does for so many of us. Grief turning to anger. Did you just come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Is this the plan, God? Her son's going to die while I'm staying with her? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Lord, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived The women received their dead back alive because of the power of God. This horrible, a series of horrible things happened, a drought, a famine. There's just enough for each day, but then tragedy befalls them. But this woman received her dead back alive. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Every story whispers Jesus' name. Every story of the Old Testament whispers the name Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, the one who can overcome death. Jesus, the hope of our salvation. Jesus, the anchor for our soul. Jesus, the miracle worker. And a similar story in John 11 When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, "'Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died.'" Her brother Lazarus, a very similar story. Whereas this widow at Zarephath and even Elijah had said, "'God, how could you let this happen?' In the New Testament, looking in Jesus's face, "'How could you let this happen?' If you had been here, my brother would not have died. In this world, you will have trouble. But put your hope in God. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb of Lazarus. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus, the one who overcomes sin and death, free him from his grave. He is alive again. He is alive. Every story whispers his name. The women receive their dead back alive. And in Luke 24, on the first day of the week, While he was still with you in Galilee, he's alive. Jesus is alive. Every story whispers his name, and Jesus is coming back. He will return. In this world, we have trouble. In this world, there is grief. In this world, there is tragedy. This week, there have been horrific tragedies. We've grieved deeply the horror of what has happened in Lahaina. We've watched as wildfires have ravaged Canada, the Pacific Northwest, as, as um, <laughs> Southern California is expecting hurricanes. We're, we're watching the world around. And these are just a few of the things we're watching in this world you will have trouble, but put your hope in Jesus because the story's not over. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is worthy of our hope. Jesus is worthy of our trust. And so to the people to whom this letter of Hebrews was initially written it or spoken even, it may have been a sermon, whoever received this first, these Christians were starting to feel like, Is this hope of Jesus strong enough to stand up to the trouble of the day? Yes, friends. Yes, church. The hope in Jesus is enough. We will have trouble, but Jesus is a firm anchor for our souls. So let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. He will do what he said and all things will be made well. The story's not over yet. We worship a God who overcomes death. So church, take heart. Jesus is our hope, and the story's not done. Let's move to continued worship, but first let's begin with uh, just a word of prayer. Lord, the trouble of our day is overwhelming to us, as it has been to many believers before us. But we believe you. We believe these stories. We believe you're returning We believe you have conquered sin and death. We believe in your goodness. We know you are near. And so, Lord, we pray for that strengthening of our own souls that those first recipients of this letter were offered that same encouragement. I pray that encouragement for the brothers and sisters of mine in this room. We pray that we will hold firm to you, the anchor for our soul. And as a response, Lord, we'll stand to our feet and give you our worship. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.